Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, the NCC partnered with the podcast Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley, a podcast about democracy and elections hosted by professors Edward Foley and Frenita Tolson. They joined fellow elections expert Michael Morley and NCC President Jeffrey Rosen for a history lesson on one of the most contentious presidential elections in American history, the 1876 Hayes-Tilden election, and what it can teach us today. I'm Ned Foley, and with Frenita Tolson, this is a live special podcast of uh, Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. We are extremely delighted that we are partnering with the National Constitution Center, and Jeff Rosen, our good friend, is its uh, president, and uh, we feel he's really the host of this, but we're happy to be hosts because it's a an episode of our podcast, and also Michael Morley is uh, a guest, another friend of the of our podcast, and has been uh, a guest on previous episodes. And so the four of us together will um, uh, have a great discussion for an hour on the Hayes-Tilden disputed election of 1876 uh, and its implications for today. Jeff, do you want to say some words of introduction as on behalf of the National Constitution Center? Absolutely, Ned, and so thrilled to be co-hosting this with you and Frida uh, for Free and Fair. It's a wonderful joining of forces of our two great uh, podcasts, and we're also so honored to have uh, Michael Morley, who's been such a great friend to uh, the National Constitution Center and to Free and Fair. Well, the only thing I have to do is to recite the National Constitution Center's mission statement, because we cannot begin a National Constitution Center program without inspiring ourselves uh, with that uh, galvanizing mission, which comes from Congress. So here we go. And friends at home, recite along with me. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this discussion of the disputed election of 1876. We chose this election because it is one of the most contested in American history. It led to uh, a dispute about who had won the Electoral College vote, which uh, not only precipitated the Compromise of 1877, uh, which you'll learn about, but also an important legal reform called the Electoral Count Act in uh, the 1880s, which was relevant in Bush v. Gore and could possibly be relevant uh, in 2020. So my role is is simple here. I'm going to play the, the Susan Page role of the uh, very... Uh, the potted plant uh, moderator with a, with a group of very civil panelists. And I'm just going to begin, Ned, by asking you to set the stage. Uh, 1876 was uh, right after the Civil War. The election wasn't resolved until two days before Inauguration Day. There was an actual risk of civil war over the election. Take us up from the uh, stakes in the election to the campaign to that disputed election day itself. Great. Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, and I want to preface this by saying I never learned about this in my high school history class. I don't know if other people did, but I think of this as a particularly significant episode in American history, both political history and constitutional history. And, you know, we learned about the Civil War. We even learned about Reconstruction, but not about the demise of Reconstruction, of which this election played such a pivotal role. And I wonder if that's because it's something of a national embarrassment or even worse, a national tragedy. The end of Reconstruction brought a century of oppression in the South, a denial of civil rights and a denial of voting rights. And we kind of have to acknowledge that up front, unfortunately, as we sort out the implications of this episode for the future and whether or not we're living with some of those implications today. But despite that, you know, downer of a story, because it is tragic in, in, in important ways. There is also some heroism involved. Um, spe the Speaker of the House, Samuel Randall, who's a native of Philadelphia, it, who was just a kind of hack machine politician by background, 
actually plays a really important role kind of holding the Constitution together and avoiding a second civil war or really a constitutional apocalypse, as we'll get into. And so I think um, I, I think it's with regret that that Americans aren't told the full dimensions of this story because it it's almost Shakespearean, I'd like to say, in terms of the humanity of it and and people rising to the occasion and then the tragedy of it. So I hope um, everybody today gets a little bit of a feel for this story and then wanting to learn more. Um, so just to set the stage real quickly and then turn it over to Fernita and Michael for their uh, opening thoughts, um, Reconstruction is playing the key role here. Um, the Grant administration, Ulysses Grant, President Grant, has had two terms as president trying to enforce civil rights. You know, he, he had been the general to win the war for Lincoln, and then he devoted his presidency to trying to make the peace work to serve the purposes of the war as the Union saw it. And that included uh, the implications of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And for, for fans of, of both of our podcasts and, and the National Constitution Center, I'm sure they all love the musical Hamilton and love the biography of Hamilton written by Ron Chernow. I think the biography that Chernow wrote of Grant is even better in terms of the richness of that story. But again, it's a complicated story. But uh, just imagine President Grant trying to protect the rights of African-Americans in the South, but it's slipping away. The election of 1872, which was Grant's re-election, is already starting to see the rise of the so-called Redeemer movement in the South. These are the people in the South who want, in essence, to win the peace uh, for white supremacy, even though they lost the war for, for the, um, the old Confederacy. And they're gaining strength in the South. And so by 1876, they're on the verge of victory. Their candidate on the Democratic Party is Samuel Tilden, who is a Northern Democrat. He's from New York. But his political alliance is with the Northern Democrats, which are kind of a working class party, plus the Southern Democrats, which is the Redeemer movement. Then Rutherford Hayes, a general, Union general, is the new nominee of the Republican Party, who's supposed to, it's the party of Lincoln, the legacy of... Um, of, uh, of, of Lincoln and Grant and carry forward, forward as best they can uh, the beliefs and values of the Republican Party. So that's kind of the political dynamic going into election day and going into the possibility of, of the dispute. And I guess before we get into the details of the dispute and the months-long struggle over that, maybe we should see if uh, Fernita or Michael want to say anything about this, the political background of, uh, of this episode. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. You've completely wet our appetite, Shakespearean, apocalyptic, and given us a sense of Grant actually preparing for martial law to prevent a second inauguration. So, Frenita, you know, what were the stakes in the election, the political stakes? And then give us a sense of election day itself. It was so close that Rutherford Hayes went to bed thinking he'd lost. Just t take us back to the scene and, and help us understand what went on. If I remember correctly, George Bush went to bed the same way, right? He thought that he had won and then he lost and then he won again, right? So um, there's a lot of uh, a lot about this history that um, resonates today, right? The fact that it was at a time of high partisan polarization, um, the fact that you had uh, broad voter disenfranchisement. So it was African-Americans in the South. Um, it was also Republicans in the South, white Republicans and their allies. Um, there was also massive fraud in the North, um, and in some ways, that played a huge role in what act, what ended up happening with respect to the dispute, right? Because in some ways, the Republicans in the in counting the votes in the South and in, in the states where they were holding on to political power, um, but barely, right? So the the Redeemer Democrats were starting to take over Southern states again, and so um, in many ways, Republicans felt justified um, in counting the votes in the way that they that they counted them and throwing out votes and and trying to make sure that Hayes won in part because they felt like they were trying to offset. 
um, the disenfranchisement of African-Americans in the South. Um, and so one thing that always stands out to me and, and that really resonates, and if you think about it in terms of everything that's happening now, is that so often our uh, political parties feel justified and feel like the means justify the ends. Um, but and in fact, it could lead to a pretty uh, disastrous outcome because the outcome here, of course, was the withdrawal of um, the military from the southern states. And so at the end of the day, I, I just I find it deeply ironic that Republicans were um, trying to offset the disenfranchisement of African-Americans in the South by how they conducted the vote in the wake of the dispute. But at the end of the day, it ended up uh, costing them African-American support um, because they had to give that up in order to keep the presidency. Right. They had to sacrifice the political interests um, and sometimes the lives of African-Americans in order to keep the presidency. So just a, a deep irony there. Um, but, you know, uh, one other thing that stands out when thinking about 1876 is uh, as uh, as as they had mentioned, uh, Samuel Randall. Right. He was this, you know, just this random politician who um, did this incredible thing. Right. He refused to allow um, his party to act in ways that were necessary, that were good for the party, but terrible for the country. Right. And so um, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, but I just want to put on the table this idea of uh, today, perhaps we need more Samuel Randall's. We need more Francis Barlow's. We need more people who were president in 1876 who were willing to put country over party. Um, and so just another thing that sort of resonates and why me and Ned thought that this election would, would be such a good counterpoint for everything that's happening right now. Those are several points that are so powerful and important to remember. As you just said, the Republicans started off by objecting to fraud because they were concerned about protecting African-American rights, but in the end were more interested in hanging on to power than to uh, standing by African-Americans. Uh, and then that uh, fact that profiles in courage were remarkably rare, but all the more striking as a result. Uh, Michael, what more can you tell us uh, before we leave election day about the back and forth and how rare it was for the country to watch the uh, loser of the popular vote potentially winning the Electoral College. Uh, set the stage one last time. Sure. I mean, I think that this election is one of the most glaring examples of the ironies of the Civil War, of the outcome of the Civil War, where ostensibly, although the North won the war, due to the, the, the 13th Amendment eliminated slavery, while you still had a system of white supremacy throughout the South, African Americans in many places were disenfranchised, they were kept away from the polls via violence, they were kept away from the polls via fraud. The way that the that the republic, the congressional Republicans had thought to deal with this in the 14th Amendment was a primarily political tool, right? As 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 uh, Fernita has written about, right? Section two of the 14th Amendment said was said rather than forcing Southern states to extend the franchise globally, it essentially left them with a choice. It said you can either choose to extend the franchise to all males who are at least 21 and male citizens who are at least 21 who haven't been engaged in insurrection, in which case then the theory was that would be a win for Republicans because the African-Americans throughout the South joined together with white Republicans in the South would ensure re uh, Republicans get elected to Congress. On the other hand, if states chose not to extend the franchise, then they would lose representation in the House of Representatives and by extension, the Electoral College. And so if Southern states refused to enfranchise African-Americans, their influence over the federal government would diminish. They would lose seats in the House. They would lose seats in the Electoral College. And yet again, Northern Republicans would be able to maintain control over Congress, thereby allowing them to continue reconstruction, to aggressively enforce African Americans' rights in 1870. Right when when this when the census came, the the results of the census came back, and it came time to actually start stripping states of representation. When they when Congress realized that hey, some Northern states haven't actually extended the franchise to the full extent of Section Two of the Fourteenth Amendment, some Northern states would were in a position to potentially lose some seats as well. All of a sudden, the political will to enforce voting rights dissipated. They said, well, we'll put it off. We'll do it next time. These numbers aren't reliable. We can't count on these numbers. And the decision was made not to enforce Section 2, not to strip any states, including the former Confederate states, of representation in Congress. And so what you had was 
disenfranchisement in the South while allowing those Southern states to retain their full political power. And that's, in my view, one of the major factors that set the stage for the for the election of 1876. All right, Ned, we're now on November 8th, I guess, because Election Day was November 7th. Uh, Samuel Tilden has uh, a majority of the popular vote. And the morning after the election, he has 184 out of 105 electoral votes. Uh, Hayes has at best 166 electoral votes. The the 19 electoral votes from Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, all ex-Confederate states, are in dispute. Democrats cry foul and they say Republicans are uh, stealing those seats and they send their own votes to Washington and tell us what happens next when you've got a Congress split between a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. The 12th Amendment doesn't provide a clear uh, dispute resolution and the whole controversy ends with Congress creating an unprecedented federal election commission. Yes, that's exactly right. So the key point there is that the Republicans controlled the Senate and the Democrats controlled the House and Congress. And that split has the possibility of stalemate. Uh, and there was no tie-breaking mechanism. And that that is the most important fact to, that pervades this whole situation and something to worry about if we think about the value of understanding this history for what could happen in a disputed election in the future, maybe this year, maybe some other time in the in the future. So again, you, so we have to think of the sweep between November, as you say, all the way up to March, because the resolution didn't happen until two days before Inauguration Day, as you said, Jeff. Inauguration Day back then was March 4th, and they were still fighting on March 2nd. I mean, that's kind of crazy. Think That would be like, for us, not knowing who's going to be president on, on January 18. So you mentioned these three Southern states, um, and as Franita pointed out, um, what the, the Republicans are still clinging to power because of Reconstruction in terms of the vote counting machinery in the canvassing boards, and because they're upset, rightfully so, at the at the horrific disenfranchisement that's occurred, they think they can use their control of the counting process to manipulate the returns, and so they engage in what historically seems like sort of blatant vote counting manipulation. Do two wrongs make a right? You know, that's part of the moral calculus that you have to, to think about in the, in this messy story. But they, um, and, but till the Tilden team thinks it's fraud in, in the counting process. What happens is both the Tilden electors, remember we as citizens, we don't vote for president. We vote for members of the electoral college and what happened on the date that the Electoral College meant in, in all the states around the country, in these battleground states back then of Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, you had the Tilden electors and the Hayes electors meeting simultaneously, each claiming to be the lawful authoritative electors from these disputed states. Oregon was also disputed as kind of this uh, wild card move that the Tilden team wanted to put on the table that they thought they could checkmate Hayes, if the if they lost the southern states, and we could discuss that complexity if we need to, but there are four states that Congress receives competing submissions, and as you said, Jeff, the Twelfth Amendment, which is the constitutional provision at work here, doesn't say what to do. It's written in the passive voice. It, it just says the vote shall be counted. It doesn't say how and and what to do when you've got a bicameral legislature, the Senate and the House disagreeing. So as you said, they, Congress tried to compromise and create a commission, a special commission just for that year. Uh, it was a good idea, but it was really horrifically implemented because it had too many members. It was 15 people, five senators, five representatives, and five justices of the Supreme Court. So already kind of a big unwieldy group. And 10 of them coming from Congress were pure politicians. And it was structured, you'd have five Republicans and five Democrats. So they always acted politically. And then they thought that of the justices, two were going to lean Republican, two were going to lean Democrat, and they hoped one would be neutral. Well, to have one neutral member of a 15-member body leaves the neutral pretty isolated, right? Because you're going to have a 7-7 split on both sides. But then the worst thing happened is the person 
picked to be the neutral, declined to serve. Justice David Davis of the Supreme Court, he was genuinely thought to be a neutral, but he didn't show up. And they had to appoint another Supreme Court justice. That was the rule that they created. And the least objectionable was another Republican. So the commission then divides in a series of eight to seven votes on party lines in, with respect to each and every one of these disputed states. First Florida, then Louisiana, then Oregon, then South Carolina. And it looks like that's going to be the answer until there's this wild card move at the end involving Vermont that we should get to and focus on, except Fernita and Michael should get a turn talking about the commission and everything up to the last minute. So one thing that struck me um, in this this 15 member commission, um, it just and sometimes let me just point out, I feel like Ned's publicist, Ned has a great book called Ballot Battles that um, came out a couple years ago, maybe a couple more than a couple now, Ned, maybe three or four, where he talks about the Hayes-Tilden dispute. He's just too shy to talk about it. But it's actually a wonderful treatment of this because, um, you know, how he introduced everything with flair and drama, he writes with flair and drama as well. And so you get a, a real sense of of how, like, crazy that time must have been. So you had this 15-member commission, and it came down to Justice Bradley, right, where he was the the neutral person. And um, and he, he does a, a, a pretty good job of distilling the relevant legal disputes, really focusing on um, the uh, the slate of electors that um, were, were chosen, like all disputes resolved by that, I think it was December 6th um, in 1876. And so a lot of the Electoral Count Act that comes later is kind of based on this, the safe harbor provision, uh, I'm sorry, the safe harbor provision of the um, Electoral Count Act seems to be mirrored a lot on what Justice Bradley did in 1876. And I'm sure we will get to that. Um, but I, I want to make one other point before we get to the commission. It seems to me, especially if you listen to you know, what ended up happening. You had this 15-member commission that tries to resolve um, these disputed electoral votes. Um, a lot of this just comes down to a failure of vision, right? It, it's, it, it reminds me of something we do now a lot, which is we rule and govern based on crisis, right? So we knew, and, and, and this actually goes back to something Michael mentioned as well, the fact that the Republicans could have instituted Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. They never did. Um, they talked about doing that as early as 1872. They didn't, right? The Republicans lost control of the House in 1874, right? And so that essentially foreclosed any possibility of them having any meaningful change with respect to the Electoral College. But they knew that political power was slipping away. As early as 1866, when they were in discussions about the 14th Amendment, they knew that the issue of African-American suffrage was unpopular. It was unpopular in the North, and it was extremely unpopular in the South. And in fact, the 1867 Military Reconstruction Act and the ability to rebuild Southern governments is why Republicans were able to make political strides in the South, right? So it's no surprise that by 1876, we get to this position where we have this disputed presidential election because the Democrats, through fraud and violence, are starting to take retake control of Southern governments. So a lot of this is a, just a failure of vision. And so in the end, you end up with this sort of ad hoc commission where, um, if we were designing it from from scratch, I can't think of any framer, either of 1787, the 12th Amendment or beyond, who would come up with a 15 member commission to try to resolve a dispute like this, given partisan polarization, because arguably 1876 was probably more polarized than we are now. Wow, that is uh, saying something and it's important to stress. But nevertheless, as you say, the commission was created and there's this uh, incredibly dramatic moment where first the Democrats come and visit uh, Justice Bradley, who's inclined to give the election to the Democrat, to, to Tilden. But then he's visited by the Republican majority leader, I think, and they, they pray in the middle of the night and Bradley's in his dressing gown and Mrs. Bradley prays with him and he decides to cast the vote for uh, Hayes. Uh, Michael, after that happens, uh, the res dispute still isn't over. And uh, there's all sorts of shenanigans and uh, de Democrats threaten to use the filibuster to paralyze the electoral process. And that's why both sides have to come to the table and come up with the infamous compromise of 1877 to uh, resolve the election once and for all. So, so tell us what happened there. Sure. So the part, part, part of the problem is right, the, the way that <clears throat> this Congress had passed a law 
to create this commission, right? Un- under the law, if there was only one slate, then that would that slate would presumptively get counted unless both chambers of Congress had agreed to reject it. If there were multiple slates, then Congress presumptively would go along with whatever the commission had suggested or whatever the commission had ruled unless both chambers concurrently agreed, concurrently agreed to reject it. One of the challenges that that arises then, and Ned had had alluded to the to the the, the mysterious slate of extra electoral votes from from Vermont that, that 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 starts getting waved around and ruled out of order. Part of part of the problem is the key actors have no way of making credible commitments to bind themselves. Right, a lot of the the laws govern certainly the 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 laws governing this this commission going forward to today or at the Electoral Count Act, these are laws that don't offer judicial enforcement mechanisms, right? It's not that you can go to court and get an injunction to compel right members of Congress to count or refrain from counting particular electoral votes. So in the absence of any ability to, to force people to comply with either the, the, the terms of the statutes or the commitments they had made, ultimately it comes down to political bargaining, right? I mean, which, which, which is how we get to the compromise of 1877, where you know, the Republicans, as Frenita mentioned, right, walked away with the presidency, but only at the expense of ending Reconstruction, right, turning their backs on the very African-Americans who had been supporting the Republicans, right, who the Republicans had been had spent Reconstruction right, trying to in- protect their civil rights. And that's a structural problem that hasn't we haven't really made any progress on in the century and a half since Hayes Tilden. It's amazing uh, reality. And uh, Ned, is it fair to say that the Democrats were more concerned about denying African-Americans the possibility of equal rights than they were about winning the presidency and the Republicans more concerned about winning power than they were about maintaining their commitment to African-Americans? And then you know, after giving us a sense of that, then describe the fact that there were a a number of disputed elections uh, that followed, including between Blaine and Grover Cleveland. And those repeatedly close elections led to the passage of the famous or infamous Electoral Count Act of 1887. And tell us about what that act provides. Sure. No, I think that's a nice summary that, 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 the Republicans cared more in the end about the presidency, and they got that prize, but they sort of lost their soul in abandoning the civil rights commitment that they said that they cared about, whereas the Democrats were willing to give up on Tilden in exchange for uh, kicking the federal troops out of the South so that they could essentially uh, win the peace and have uh, and have Jim Crow laws and the rest of what we know the South to be like until the... the the second civil rights movement of, of Martin Luther King and so forth. Um, so that's that's why, in my view, it's a, it's a tragedy. But b- before we get to the Electoral Count Act, which is important, I, I just want to say something about the drama uh, that surrounded what Michael was talking about, about this um, spurious certi- extra certificate from Vermont, because we don't need tonight to focus on all the details, but the human element, I think, is important um, because... Vermont was at the end of the process because they took the states alphabetically, as would happen again now if if there was a dispute in Congress. Um, And so that's why it was February 28, going into March with inauguration just a few days later. And the Democrats had lost in the commission. And so they tried to throw a wrench into the whole process because if they could derail it, then they thought that they could um, basically win chaos and maybe get both the presidency of Tilden and the South the way they wanted it. So that's why it was so close to martial law or a second civil war. It was really, really precarious. Um, and the rules were not adequate as we've been talking about. So when the House of Representatives met on March 1st, there was a decision whether or not the House was going to kind of go along with the process that the Senate said had to happen. And the president of the Senate said it had to go a certain way. Um, But that was not going to be what the Democrats wanted. And so the Speaker of the House was a Democrat. You'd think if he did his own party's bidding, 
he would go along with trying to derail the process. Instead, he had to call out the sergeant in arms to basically quell a riot of his own party. And the newspapers of the day talk about members getting their revolvers out. They had to clear the galleries because they were afraid of gunshots. There was apparently it was the most crazy session of the House of Representatives in American history. I mean, Steven Spielberg or somebody ought to do a movie of it. It was that dramatic. And and this is why Samuel Randall deserves more knowledge is that he thought he had an obligation to the country over party because that compromise, whether you like it or not, hadn't yet been worked out. And if the process derailed, we could have had in, because if the commission had been brought back in to deal with Vermont, which is what the hardliners wanted, um, that was the move they tried to make, was to send yet one more state to the commission by surprise. The clock would have run out with no clear winner. And then you would have had both Hayes and Tilden claiming presidency and commander in chief on March 4th. Well, the country can't have two presidents simultaneously. And the generals in the War Department were signaling whether they were going to be Hayes generals or Tilden generals. That's why it was so dicey. So it was absolutely essential that Randall stop this rioting in the House so that there could at least be a clear winner. And he basically did this before the compromise was complete. So whatever you think of the overarching story, he does deserve some credit for avoiding an absolute disaster. Um, and I think with that, it does make sense to turn to the Electoral Count Act. But I also feel like Fernita and Michael might want to say something perhaps about this, the way in which it became very close to a disaster at the very end of, 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 Mar of the March situation. Sounds I do want to say something. Oh, I'm sorry, Jeff. No, no, I was going to say I would love to hear your thoughts yeah, for, for, uh, on the disaster itself. And, and then if you want to take us into the Electoral Count Act, that'd be great. So um, I do have some thoughts about um, all of the drama with Vermont, and um, it ties into my earlier comment about how there aren't enough Samuel Randalls, uh, because I do think it's a, the um, the crowd in particular should note that he did make that deal before he he did all of that before he knew about <laughs> any deals that had been struck behind the scenes, right? Like he he was acting in the at the behest of what was best for the country, but. Um, one of the reasons why I think it's important to have people who um, approach political disputes in that way is because um, this notion of uncertain chaos in order to run out the clock is very much a possibility this year, right? And so in 1876, the ploy by the Democrats to, you know, sort of produce this second slate of electors from Vermont at the last minute in order to, um, you know, run into, you know, the inauguration. And we have all of these issues with two possible presidents and two dueling inaugurations. Well, this is, a, you know, a year in which a lot of people are voting by mail. And we have states that are not going to start counting until Election Day. Um, we have this, you know, safe harbor deadline of the Electoral Count Act. Um, and so we could have the situation where it is potentially chaotic um, and it, it produces delays that are some. And, and I'm not trying to be alarmist. Right. But just in the sense that this is why talking about these historical episodes are so important. Right. Because a lot of these situations we have seen before and if we've seen them before and we've dealt with them before, then we can talk about it and try to make um, suggestions in order to prevent it from happening again. Um, and so this notion of uncertain chaos in order to introduce delay, um, very possible this year with uh, the, the sheer volume of vote by mail. But it's also something that happened in 1876 uh, when the Democrats tried to produce the competing slate from Vermont. Thank you so much for that and for explaining the pivotal role of uh, Vermont. So, Michael, anything else you want to add about that controversy? And then I'd love to get the specific provisions of the Electoral Count Act on the table because they were so central in the Bush v. Gore situation and they could be important today. I mean, the, the only other thing that that I'd, I'd point out about what we've talked about so far is that as, a, as originally envisioned, right, this, this commission had you know, 15 members, five of whom were were Supreme Court justices, one of whom was supposed to be the neutral, right? And in a sense, the thinking was that person would be the one resolving the, essentially resolving all of the disputes, all of the multiple slate disputes regarding the election, right? That person had been intended to be, right, Justice David Dennis. 
and you know, because he he was unable to serve and he he declined serving and so a, a republican replaced him i guess the one question that i always think about when this issue comes up is who is our david dennis i mean to you to, to the extent that you know i know i know ned has always has has uh, suggested the, the, the notion of having like a three-member commission to resolve election disputes. There's been a lot of uh, talk in the press about right, having various bodies or entities available to step in to be able to resolve disputes. And I question, right, is there someone today who both, right, as a matter of fact, as well as a matter of public perception, right, is regarded as, right, a knowledgeable able to credibly speak with authority on these types of contested legal issues, but also right, politically neutral enough and disinterested enough that they would be accepted by both sides as someone who would, who would occupy that, that, that David Dennis slot. Shall I just jump right in and, and respond to Michael's question on that? Please do. Um, so I think it is the key question, and it's a perfect segue to thinking about the Electoral Count Act because they emphatically wrote the statute to avoid having any kind of commission, whether it's 15 members or three members or anything else. They wanted to create mechanical rules that would answer any dispute as having instead of having a tribunal. Um, and it's funny because some of the leaders of the people who wrote the statute in their own heart of hearts, preferred the tribunal model and and thought about how to design a better tribunal than the one that they thought failed them with these split eight to seven votes. But there wasn't enough political will. The, the animosity to these eight, seven splits was so great, it wasn't possible um, to have a, a tribunal as part of the Permanent Electoral Count Act. I'm a big fan, Michael is, is correct, of of a three-person tribunal modeled on labor management arbitration where each side, so the blue team gets one seat at the table, the red team gets one seat, and the two of them pick a third. And I've even got a new uh, column in the Washington Post today on that on that concept if people are interested. But, but I think for our purposes tonight, we should focus on the fact that the statute tried to avoid that whole approach. And instead, as I said, create um, these rules. So really quickly, uh, it's a very complicated statute. And the other thing to know about it is it wasn't adopted until 1887. So that's 10 years after the Compromise of 1877, which ends the 1876 election. It wasn't that Congress was you know, twiddling their thumbs for 10 years. They worked on this problem all that time. It's just a really hard problem to figure out what's going to be your mechanism to resolve a disputed presidential election because the stakes are so high. And Jeff, as you pointed out, they had two very close calls of another repeat of, of 1876, 1880 between Garfield and Hancock, incredibly close. Uh, 1884 between Grover Cleveland and uh, James Blaine, even closer. And it was those two near misses that finally taught them that they needed us. They needed something before 1888, and so they cobbled together a compromise that was definitely everybody's second best or third best or fourth best solution because nobody thought it was perfect. And again, it was mostly designed to deal with the problem of what if the Senate wants one thing and the House wants something else because they. Everybody agreed that if the two houses of Congress could agree on the result, let them control. And they also agreed that if there was only a single submission of electoral votes from any state in the future that might be disputed, let that submission, that single submission prevail unless both chambers reject it. I think Michael referred to this idea earlier. So the, the really difficult case, and I think unfortunately it would be true yet again, despite the statute that they wrote for reasons that we could get into, is that if you've got Congress divided in a situation of multiple competing submissions. So again, imagine, you know, we, many people have been focused on Pennsylvania this year as a battleground state. It's a state where running out the clock is of some concern to us because of all the vote by mail ballots that Fernita was talking about. So various people have been imagining the possibility 
that there could be two submissions of electoral votes from the state of Pennsylvania this year, one on behalf of Biden and the other on behalf of Trump. We could explore the details of how that could happen. But the key point is if that's what arrives in Congress and the Senate wants to count one and the House wants to count the other, you have a replication of the basic stalemate structure that existed for Hayes-Tilden, but no institution. So what's the mechanical rule that's supposed to be the tiebreaker. Well, there's an interpretation of the statute that I think is the better interpretation, but it's not the only one that exists in the law review literature. So here's a statute that's supposed to give us an answer, and maybe it does, but maybe it doesn't. So that's the danger that we face as a country if we have another Hayes-Tilden type scenario. Many thanks for that. So for Anita, in terms of what the answer is, I remember from the Bush v. Gore days, that uh, many noted that if there had been a dispute between the House and the Senate, uh, the House Republican voting for Bush and the Senate uh, voting for Gore, with Gore voting for himself, uh, then the statute seems to say that the executive of the state uh, shall uh, determine which slate should be certified. So that would have meant that Jeb Bush would have ultimately decided the election if the Supreme Court hadn't stopped the recount. Uh, Ned suggests that's not the only interpretation of the statute. What's an alternative interpretation that would have someone other than the state executive certify the winning ballot in the event of a dispute between the House and the Senate? I have no idea. Ned, fill us in. I'm like, because <laughs> when I read the statute, I was like, the governor decides. And then right. and Ned's like, but wait. Yeah, well, I think tell, it, I, yeah, just uh, on record, I, th- I think it's the it, it is the my own view is that it, that is the better view that they created this rule that um, it you know if there are two submissions and the Senate and the House disagree, the, whichever one is signed by the governor um, is the is the tie breaking submission. But but uh, Michael and I have been involved in some discussions all summer and all year long, in which I, again I think that and I'll let Michael speak for himself, is more the more dominant position. But there are other ways, technical ways, where the answer might be throw both submissions out. Or there's also a question about the role of the Senate president in dealing with two submissions. So Michael probably should be the one to jump in here, I think. And this is based on the language of the statute, this, this second interpretation? Yes, Mike, but Michael should explain, I, or Michael, if you wanted, do you want to jump in? Please do. And let, let me just quote the statute because um, the fact that it's even more complicated than I thought is a, a cause for uh, great alarm, uh, although great interest. But if the two houses shall disagree in respect to the counting of such votes, then and in that case, the votes of the electors whose appointment shall have been certified by the executive of the state shall be counted. So what is the alternative interpretation that it's not the governor who decides? Well, sure, you, you 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 read that sentence, but you didn't read the 500-word sentence that came right before it, which, which is where the problem comes in, right? So, and again, right, this is this is I'm I'm not I'm not embracing this interpretation, but just in, in response to to Ned's question. So, this literally the the, the a, a sentence or two before that, the the e, section it, it's three USC section 15 of the Electoral Count Act lays out three different multiple slate scenarios, right? What what Congress should do if a state sends more than, yeah, there it is. There it is. <laughs> sends more than one slate of electors to Congress. And as you can see, this is where the, the it's written in the passive voice, right? If a slate is entitled to safe harbor status, then that slate gets presumptively counted unless both chambers agree that the votes weren't regularly given. If there's a question as to whether a slate is entitled to to safe harbor status, then the chambers, if, if the chambers both concurrently agree on which slate gets safe harbor, then that slate gets counted as long as both chambers agree the votes were regularly given. Finally, the third multiple slate scenario is if there's no slate that's entitled to safe harbor status, then whichever, if the chambers can agree on which slate is substantively lawful under state law, that slate gets counted. And if, and so the first question is you have three different multiple slate scenarios. How do you, and there's different substantive rules that apply depending on which of those three multiple slate scenarios you're in. 
How do you determine which of those multiple slate scenarios you're in? There's different possible responses to that, right? As Ned says, as Ned suggested, right, one answer is you just put all the slates from a state before the chambers of Congress and the chambers of Congress just separate and do their own thing. A a, a second possible answer is the president of the Senate, in his capacity as the presiding officer of this joint session, gets to make an initial determination subject to being overruled then by an objection and by by both chambers agreeing to overrule him. So part of the part of the ambiguity isn't really with the simple sentence that you read about the gubernatorial tiebreaker. The real problem is at that earlier stage when you're trying to figure out which of those multiple slate scenarios you're in, depending on the mechanics of how you go about handling those multiple slates, potentially even the order in which certain issues are voted on, and whether or not the president of the Senate as the presiding officer gets to make an initial call subject then to being overridden, that de- that will could determine whether you even get to the gubernatorial tiebreaker at all, or instead whether, the, whether a slate can get forced through in safe harbor status or not. Wow. I'm so glad to learn that it's even much more complicated than I already thought. Um, Podcast listeners, you didn't see the thrilling screen share that I offered, but check out the text of the Electoral Count Act yourself, uh, which you can easily find online. And Ned, now let's uh, go from these important legal arcania to the present. What is a scenario in 2020, in which case there could be competing slates from a single state, say Pennsylvania, and a dispute about how the Electoral Count Act uh, mandates that they be resolved. Yes. Yeah, so to 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 pick up on on that, um, you know, one possibility would be that um, that's been discussed in, in the press to some extent is that the counting of the ballots in the ordinary course might favor Vice President Biden, and therefore the Secretary of the Commonwealth would certify that popular vote victory and have electors appointed on that basis. And the governor would uh, embrace that as well. And so that would get submitted to Washington. But that perhaps the legislature um, at the president's bidding would say, well, the only reason why Vice President Biden won was because of vote by mail ballots. And we know the president doesn't like vote by mail ballots. And so some claim that there was something problematic. This would be a much more aggressive version of what the Florida legislature contemplated back in 2000, as you may remember, when the case was pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, the Florida legislature thought, well, who knows about these hanging chads and whatever the judicial resolution is going to be, maybe we should just go ahead and use our authority under Article 2 of the Constitution and appoint electors directly. And they took steps to do that. Ultimately, the legislature of Florida backed off once Al Gore said, I accept defeat, and it became a moot issue. But you, you can imagine a different circumstance, especially this year, where that could create this competing submissions scenario. Um, and uh, in addition to the complexities that Michael pointed out, and I wish it wasn't complex because I clarity and simplicity should be the order of the day when you're do- dealing with something as difficult and contentious as this, and yet we need an answer. Remember, this meeting of Congress is on January 6th, only two weeks before January 20th. So there's not a lot of time to resolve a dispute if the dispute kind of takes over in in Congress. But, um, and again, I don't embrace the interpretation I'm going to give you as an alternative, but there was a law review article written in the 1960s that said for one of the three substantive situations that Michael referred to, the only correct interpretation is to invalidate both submissions. And then the Congressional Research Service on behalf of Congress picked up that theory as the the prevailing theory. Now that's been disputed by other academic commentary, but we could imagine a situation where the two political parties in Congress advance competing interpretations just because they're available. That's the danger, is that as long as there's ambiguity, there's the capacity to make an argument. Uh, and if there's not judicial review, that where if the court can't insist that Congress obey the court's interpretation, as might be the case if this is treated like impeachment as the, under the political question doctrine is just belonging to Congress. And you 
Jeff will remember from Bush versus Gore that Justice Breyer wrote a very strong dissent saying that the Electoral Count Act and the history there tells us this belongs in Congress and not in the courts. So if that's the position and there's two alternative interpretations, we could get stalemate in Congress. Another factor, as Michael alluded to, is what's the role of the Senate president? Um, the 12th Amendment refers to the Senate president as the presiding officer of the joint session. And there's been a constitutional argument throughout American history, including advanced by the Rutherford Hayes team in 1876, that that constitutional status has some authoritative um, decision-making with respect to any dispute. Thomas Jefferson was the Senate president for the 1800 election that declared him the winner. John Adams was the Senate president uh, when he won in 1796. So when they wrote the 12th Amendment, they had the history of, of the Senate president potentially being a candidate for United States president, and yet they left that kind of inherent conflict of interest as part of the Constitution. Now, the Electoral Count Act was written on the premise that the Senate president should not have any real decision-making authority. They wanted it to be in control of the two chambers, hopefully in agreement, but if not, then some mechanical tiebreaker that we've been talking about. But there is something of a wild card if a Senate president tries to assert constitutional authority to kind of override the statutory rules. So that's another level of complexity, unfortunately. All of that makes me most concerned about replicating the, what was the end game in 1876? Because as we talked about, it was that dicey session that Samuel Randall presided over on March 1st, that if it had derailed, could have led to this genuine crisis of two presidents or two claiming to be presidents on March 4th. Well, what if this year the process over Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or some other state derails in Congress with the Senate wanting one answer, the House wanting another answer, and disagreement over the rules, right? I mean, if, it, if everybody agrees the governor is tiebreaker, fine, then we have an answer. But if there isn't unanimity in Congress over that after they've already divided by hypothesis, right? Because we're talking about the situation where the Senate has already said they want one answer and the House wants the other. If, if Congress breaks down in that way on January 6th, what if they don't get their act together in the next two weeks? That's the situation that I'm, you know, again, I hope this is just a law professor's hypothetical, except 1876 showed us it's not hypothetical. That's why I think every American needs to understand this story. Because again, most people who think about it at all think about the commission answering the question or this compromise answering the question. And, and that's part of the story. But the real truth about the story was how close to the cliff we came as a country and didn't quite go over. And again, I hope we never get anywhere close to that cliff. But the fact that we came that close to the cliff is sobering or should be sobering if we know our history. And so if, if we're trying to help our country in the way that Fernita talked about Samuel Randall trying to help the country, we do everything in our power as citizens to avoid getting close to the situation where at noon on January 20th, two people are saying, I'm president, give me the nuclear codes. Because that's the contemporary version of what they came very close to back then. Absolutely. And you, uh, all three of you are helping our country by helping us understand the scenarios. Frenita, what most concerns you about the nightmare scenario? The, the Congress that counts the electoral votes on January 6th is the new Congress that's been elected on January 3rd. So does that lessen the, the possibility of a dispute? And then in the course of giving us your the scenario you're most concerned about, uh, Solomon Goldman says, Three USC says if a state hasn't made a choice by election day, the legislature of the state can pick the electors. Does this mean that late counting of mail-in ballots opens the door to the legislature ignoring the election and choosing the electors itself? I think it does. Um, I think that the language there gives the the state legislature substantial authority to decide um, post-election um, how to allocate the electors. But I do think 
So Ned's comments really spoke to me, and I think they spoke to me in part because it reveals how much our system has gotten away from the voters. Um, keep in mind, everything that we're talking about, all of these disaster scenarios, all of this is is mostly our post, a post-election discussion. So voters have turned out on November 3rd. They've waited in line four, five, six hours sometimes. They've done everything that they needed to do, requested absentee ballots, sometimes didn't receive them. And yet there's still a possibility in our system that that means absolutely nothing. And this is just crazy to me. This is just absolutely insane. And it raises another question. And so, I mean, you know, to answer your direct question, Jeff, my nightmare scenario is that the election is close. Whatever follows from that follows. But if the election is close, then I think everything that Ned was talking about as a hypothetical becomes less hypothetical. Um, but I do think it raises a broader point about how long can we continue to say that our system is broken? At some point, when we keep having elections under this system, the system is not broken. We are making an intentional choice for this to be our system. Um, and so um, the timeline is, is in, in, in some ways, this comes back to the timeline for the Electoral Count Act, right? As Ned pointed out, it was 10 years after the, the dispute in the 1870s. But what's striking about that is that even after a decade, they recognized that this was still a problem, right? They had two other presidential elections that were really, really close. And they said, look, we have to do something. Um, we are not doing that. Right. We had 2000. We had 2016. We're coming up on 2020. And now we have to basically have um, run all of these different scenarios to try to anticipate what might happen because we haven't fixed our system. Even though, like in the 1870s and 1880s, we've had presidential elections that speak to a need for change. Um, And so, you know, I think we are living in a nightmare, but um, (laughs) an even worse nightmare scenario would be for um, the hypotheticals that we've discussed today to, you know, become possibilities. Uh, and I, I do think that that's, that's something that's scary, but could happen because we haven't changed our system. Michael, the last word in this sobering but very illuminating discussion is to you, what are you most concerned about uh, when we think about scenarios uh, post-election day? And what can we learn from the election of 1876 about how to resolve them? Well, I I think the election of 1876 really has two two main things that scare me, right? The first is just how easy it is to have a competing slate of electors, right? If you think through the, the states that were at issue, Florida, right, you had the official slate and then you had the attorney general, right, who who was a Democrat, certify a competing slate of electors. Lou, uh, in, in South Carolina, you had just the electors themselves, right? the losing slate of electors themselves just get together, cast their votes and certify themselves as the winner. In Louisiana, right, you, you, had, you had somebody claiming he should have been governor, right, who was purporting to exercise the powers of the governor, who's, uh, pur- purporting to certify a, a, a competing slate of electors. And under the Electoral Count Act, the rules that Congress applies in, during that joint session on January 6th differ dramatically depending on whether you only have a single slate from a state versus when you have multiple slates, right? If you have a single slate, it is presumptively counted unless the chambers agree not to. And the only options are either that particular presidential candidate gets the votes or the state is entirely disenfranchised, right? Which I think that there are strong political pressures against. Whereas once you have multiple slates, well, now you get into the more complicated aspects of the Electoral Count Act, the more poorly drafted portions of the Electoral Count Act. And now the options are count one slate for one candidate or count the other slate for the other candidate. And so there's the, 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 the stakes are much higher. The incentives are the exact opposite of what you would want them to be, right? They're actually, the Electoral Count Act actually creates incentives to have those competing slates of electors in order to try to keep alive the opportunity to have those votes counted for your, for your, for your candidate. And you know, one, one other point that Ned had alluded to is that right, when you are dealing with these political issues, right, the right to vote, especially if you're in a competing elector situation, you could very easily have a situation where there's one slate that might appear to be the technically legally correct answer, 
and then another slate that has a claim to be more accurately representing the will of the people, right? I mean, you could, we could, we're going to have a lot of first time absentee voters this election. You could easily imagine a situation where two or three times the ordinary number of absentee ballots wind up getting rejected, that they, that they either came in late or they didn't have a signature. There's some sort of technical defect under state law. And so you could imagine that the legally correct answer is that one candidate wins because those ballots are invalidated under state law. And yet you could imagine a state governor, a state legislature saying, you know, a result where 10 percent of the votes were thrown out, where 10 percent of the votes were deemed invalid, where we know how those votes were cast. We think that that's democratically illegitimate. And so we think that normatively the, 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 the right answer is the other is, is, is for the other candidate. Those types of those types of conflicts, right, between technical rules versus greater democratic legitimacy, could wind up having a lot of purchase in in public debates. Thank you so much, Ned Foley, Fernita Tolson, and Michael Morley for a stimulating, uh, sobering, and very uh, very focusing discussion of the election of 1876 and the lessons that it may have for today. Friends, you can listen to this great discussion on Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley, which is the podcast that breaks down complex legal issues for listeners who care about democracy and elections, and also on the NCC's weekly podcast, We the People, and live at the National Constitution Center. Until then, Ned, Fernita, Michael, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This program was presented in partnership with the podcast Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. This episode was engineered by the NCC's AV team and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber and Lana Ulrich. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.